Well, if you have your uh, Bibles, turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, slip your hands up. The ushers are passing them out. Um, we were in Matthew two weeks ago, and then last week we, we kind of took a pause and we did um, a week on true worship. We had five different bands kind of leading us through the point of what is the difference between worship and praise through Psalm 150. It was really fun to be there. It's, it's fun to have uh, um, God using a bunch of musicians just voluntarily and, and their talents to, to lead us and, and to join us in worshiping. So that's, that's been awesome. But we're in chapter 17, uh, Matthew right now, and, and I got to kind of do a quick refresher because this is one of those chapter breaks that probably was done in, in the wrong spot, but it still works. But it was done not necessarily ideal for what the point is being communicated. And so chapter 17, I'm just going to, what I'm going to do is, this is one of those texts where it's, it's an interesting bit of history that most of us kind of read, and because of our kind of lack of understanding in it, or maybe our just our un- unfamiliarity or our uncomfortableness with the, the, the situation, the scenario that's going on, I think a lot of times we just kind of bro- blow through it and kind of breeze past it, or, or maybe we've heard this before, and it's like, okay, that's neat, and we move on, but, but I'm just going to read it to its entirety, and then back us up a little bit to where we were, and then we'll kind of hopefully figure out um, what God is, is trying to say to each of us this week. Chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, or obey him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did, did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands." Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So if you, have you ever been in a situation where uh, maybe it's your work or at school or if you're part of a sports team or, or something where, where a coach or a, a boss or whatever, maybe in your family situation where they said, hey, look, this, this next week is going to be horrible, Right? I mean, this is going to be one of the worst weeks of your life. You're going to, it's going to be so hard. In fact, it's just going to be hard, but it's going to get harder and harder and harder and harder. In fact, it's just going to get, like, I'll be amazed if you even make it through it or however they say it. Have you ever experienced something like that where you knew what was coming was super, super difficult? So difficult that maybe you found yourself struggling for the, with the motivation as to whether or not to do it. So difficult that you're like, well, wait a second now. Am I really going to do that and then, and then the coach kind of throws, or, the, or the, the, the boss kind of throws this in. But if you do it, if you, if, you, if you can go this way, if you can maintain this thing, then what comes on the other side is so glorious, so good, so much better than the pain that you're experiencing at that moment. I kind of feel like that that's what this text is doing. 
Mainly because if you, look, if you go back, like I said, this, this break, this break should have been earlier, but if you go back in chapter 16, where we taught two weeks ago, end of 16, Jesus has said, um, verse 28, said, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so what, what he had just done is he had talked about this, and then it says, and six days later. The Gospel of Luke says eight days later, but um, the way that that's, that phrase is used is kind of like a week. And so most likely Luke was including just the week and also the confession of, of Peter. Because remember, Peter just confessed before this that Jesus was the son, of, uh, the son of God. And then he went and tried to rebuke him for saying that he can't be crucified. He can't. The Messiah doesn't die. The Messiah comes in and wins. And so Jesus had taught in that situation where he said three specific things. And this is what we talked about two weeks ago. He said, he said that, that, um, that you are to deny yourself. That means to abandon self motivation, self-worth, um, self-will, ab abandon all of your selfish desires. Abandon that. S deny yourself. Abandon your own way. Self-denial. No more your will, but his will. And so he says, deny yourself. And then he says, take up your cross. And we laid that out as I basically said, like, take up your cross means at any cost. At any cost. If you're willing to die yourself, every single Jewish person understood that the cross was a gruesome picture of death. It was a gruesome picture of crucifixion. And so every single Jew knew that, okay, wait, this means that I've got to not only deny myself, but I've got to die to myself. And I used the analogy that basically said that our time, our lives, our relationships, our sports, our education, our marriage, our kids, everything needs to be on the table when it comes to Christ. We don't get to say, okay, Jesus, you can have all of this, but, and let's hold this one thing back. It's, it's all on the table. We're abandoning ourself. We're, we're dying to ourselves and saying, whatever it costs, Jesus, I will. And then he throws out the, follow me. So he says, deny yourself, die to self, and follow me. He says, there's this easy progression. That is how it works. Denying yourself, dying to self, and following me. And I, I, we talked about a few weeks ago where some of us don't want to really fully die to ourselves. We want to, like, die to certain aspects. Oh, you can have my Sundays. You can have uh, uh, this, this portion of my life. You can have a little bit extra time here or there. You can have these couple bucks here, but we never really surrender all of us. And Jesus is saying to follow him, it's, it's everything. And so he just lays this picture out. And if you're the disciple sitting there, you're kind of going, whoa, what did I sign up for? Like, are, we, are we really doing this? Like, I kind of feel like they'd be looking at each other going, okay, like, I, I, I don't know, guys. Are we, are we really, really going to do this? Like, that seems awful ridiculous and kind of scary and kind of hard. And, and that's where I think this transfiguration comes in, is that this is it, God in his, his graciousness. It gives these three disciples this beautiful experience that I think was kind of it, it, not only telling them, like, yeah, it's, it's going to be hard, but, but look at who you're doing it for. Look at, look at what the point of all this is. And so that's, that's transfiguration. So it says it's six days later, and it says on, on a high mount, there's disagreement. I've been to Israel. They have uh, on Mount Tabor is a, a little mount, um, a ways away from Caesarea Philippi, um, is the traditional site of the, the transfiguration. When I say traditional site, that means you have to pay to go stand on that hill and be like, oh, I'm here. Neat. Um, but that's actually not the actual site of it. Um, it's more likely Mount Hermon, which is near, um, right, right off of Caesarea Philippi, or uh, Mount Paneus. But Mount Hermon's most likely option, but at this time when this was done, this is about six months before Jesus' crucifixion. It's kind of the timetable. Mount Hermon's really, really high. It's the tallest one there. It would have, it would have been full of snow. So the likelihood of them going up there to, to camp on snow is probably not. But anyways, neither here nor there. They're, they're up on a high mountain, and, and this is just 
James, John, and Peter. And scholars will say, like, you want to kind of read into who they are, like, oh, it's the reason why it's these three is because John is, is, you know, he lets us know over and over again in his Gospels that he's the one that Jesus loved. I always thought that was interesting. It's like, really, John? All right, cool. Um, anyway, so it's like John is the depiction of, of Jesus' relationship with us as a friend and those that love. And, and James is, is, he's actually the first martyr. For, for, for Jesus Christ. He's the first martyr after Jesus dies. And so James is kind of the, the picture for us as followers of martyrdom. And Peter is the kind of the prophet, the idea that's going to go before and, and, and advance the, the gospel. And I mean, maybe that's it, but, but we predominantly see these three going away with Jesus close. And so Jesus was spending the majority of his time focusing in on these three. And we've already talked about this is the turn in the gospel where he's going to spend more time with his disciples and less time with the crowds. And so he's now at this point where he's going to start empowering the disciples. So he takes these three closest disciples, these three that he spent a lot of time teaching, a lot of time loving, a lot of time rebuking. And they're there, and they're kind of in this mountaintop with him, in this experience. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that they fell asleep while Jesus was praying, which is comical because that's pretty much what they always do. So either Jesus prays for a long time or the disciples just need to drink some more caffeine or something. I don't know what's going on. But, but either way, it tells us that they were asleep while Jesus was praying, and that's where this begins. Is this, this transfiguration happens because they, um, like right in that moment, so they wake up, and it's, the word that's used in the wake up is like they're fully awake and fully aware of what's going on. And so, so this transfiguration happens. Um, now, let's define that word real quickly. Transfiguration is um, where we get the word metamorphosis. So it's essentially what we would use to saying a caterpillar to a butterfly. Okay, so when he says transfigure, it's not like he just looked a little bit different. The caterpillar and the butterfly are still one, but they are drastically different. And so Jesus, in this instant, um, is transfigured in front, of, in front of the disciples, in front of these three disciples. He's changed to the way he looks, and, and marks his bright light coming from within. It's not like Moses where the word is reflection, so the light is kind of reflecting off of him. It's a, it's a light that's coming from within, and he's transfigured. He, he looks in some form different, and he, it is obviously different. And so here's Jesus on the mountaintop with these three disciples that are just kind of waking up, wiping the drool off the side of their mouth. And they're going, whoa, bright light. Like, what's going on here, right? And then all of a sudden we have this, and, and there's Jesus having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And it's funny, when, when you read texts like this, you just kind of think about that, like, oh, that's neat. And you kind of move past it. At least I do a lot. But you know, they, they didn't have, I just, this might be a shock to you, they didn't have Facebook back then. Okay, I don't know if you guys knew that, right? So it's not like they're picking up their smartphone going, hmm, that looks like Moses. Oh, a little bit of grayer hair. No, look, oh, there's, there's Elijah. That's got to be Elijah. So I have no idea how they know that it's Moses and Elijah, other than my, my best presumption is that, that they said their names, that they spoke in there and they're doing this. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that they're speaking of Jesus' departure which is such a great word. That word is actually exodus. It's, it's the same idea. So here's Jesus standing with Moses, which, hello, like, that's like the exodus of exodus, right? Moses, right? Like, like he's, the, he's the one, like, let my people go. Like, he's, he takes the people of Israel out of slavery and, and, uh, under, the, under the rule and out into the wilderness and then ultimately sends them off into the promised land. And so, so here's now Moses standing next to Jesus who is held in the highest of regard for all the Jews in that day. And he's, 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 uh, he embodies and, and like kind of just carries about him the Old Testament law. Not the, not the scribal law that, that added the 600-something extra things to the law of God, but he's the one that like was it, like wrote the, the stone tablets. Like he's, he's there. Like he, this is him. 
And so every Jew is like held him in high regard, like the law is of Moses. We don't want to break the law of Moses. This is why there was so much contra controversy and confrontation towards Jesus, because they kept trying to say, are you not upholding the law of Moses? And so here, Moses in this beautiful picture of, of an exodus, now there's this conversation of Jesus in an exodus. And the main difference is that Moses brought his people out from slavery to a, to a, to a kingdom, but Jesus brings us out of slavery from the bondage of sin. Right? So it's a, it's a way better exodus. And then next to him is Elijah. And Elijah is, is, is kind of the prophet of prophets. Like if they were gonna if they were gonna talk about a prophet, most of the time it was Elijah. In fact, a lot of people continually thought that Jesus was Elijah. We get that like, who do the people say that I am? And some would say, oh, he's John the Baptist reincarnated, or Elijah, or he's this person. Like they would kind of point to Elijah because there was this prophecy that knew that Elijah was the forerunner. He was coming. And so here's the the Old Testament law, Moses, and the prophets. Elijah, and both of the entire Old Testament and all the law and all of the prophecies point to Jesus Christ. So in, in, in one conversation that's happening, and I don't know like if it's lunch break for them or what, like they're up there having this conversation and the disciples are just like, dude, grab that popcorn, like look at what's going on. Like I don't know what they're like, they're just experiencing this and they're seeing the, this, the, this, this conversation happen. And then Peter God bless him, right? Like Peter does what he does best, right? He speaks. And sometimes it's like, oh, man, you shouldn't have done that. And other times it's like, wow, that was really great. So here's Peter again. And, and I, like I said, I don't know what's going on. My assumption is like Peter speaking and John and James are like a step back, maybe a large step back, and they're kind of watching like a train, tra train, you know, like this could be a train crash or this could be awesome. Like I don't know what's going on. Like I feel like they always probably, this is me reading into it, I feel like they always probably are like, yeah, we're with him. Unless, you know, like... <laughs> Or when, when he gets rebuked, it's like, oh, man, that, that stinks. I was thinking it, but he said it. Oh, well, you know. And so Peter speaks up. He's like, it's so good that we are here. Right? It's a genuine, like, it is so good to be here. Like, there's this joy. That, that statement just seems like, oh, man, it's good to be here. No, it's like, it is so good. So good to be here. In fact, it's so good to be here. Let's build some booths, some tabernacles. Let's, let's build some, some tents, and one for Elijah, and one for Jesus, and one for Moses. It's going to be awesome, and we can just stay here forever. In fact, how many of you have ever experienced that feeling? Maybe you've gone, you know, I used to joke about it in youth ministry. It was called the camp high, you know, where everyone, like, all the kids love Jesus at camp, and then they come back and they don't. Sorry, that's my embittered youth ministry. That's not how it always works out, but... <clears throat> But there's this camp experience where they, where they look at each other and they're like, I don't want to go back because they know how difficult it's going to be, right? They're like, wait, if I go back, I got I to deal with that. If you've been on a missions trip and you've experienced something where you're like, man, there's this unity and this, and this oneness and this, 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 it's just amazing to watch God work because we're so laser focused, but when I go back, I get distracted. And I feel like that's more the motivation of Peter's comment here. He just heard what option A was. Deny yourself, die to self, and follow him. Painful death, right? He's like, it's so good to be up here. This is awesome. Like, let's just stay. Wouldn't that be great? Which is such a selfish motivation, right? For those of you that have been on missions trips and you've, you've experienced something amazing and all you want to do is be back instead of being present here, you're missing the point. Just like Peter's missing the point here. He's, he's saying, I want to stay here. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't understand. We have to leave here. I have to be crucified so that you can follow me. And it's going to be painful. 
And so Peter opens his mouth, says we should build this booth. Some may say that depending upon Peter's knowledge of the, the teachings of the rabbis, there was the, the festival of the tabernacle where they would, the Jewish people would on a yearly basis would leave their really small homes and go out and build a little tent or booth and sleep in it and stay in it for about six days. And on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, they would come out and celebrate God for relieving them or freeing them from the wilderness. It was kind of a picture of being freed from slavery, done in the, out in the wilderness, and now I can move into my life with God. And so that was kind of a celebration. So maybe six months before the crucifixion, maybe it was around that time, and that's what Peter was saying it. But either way, here's the really interesting thing about Peter. This is the second time in the course of a week that he gets interrupted by God. I, I don't know if you ever like, like this is the second time the dude's gotten interrupted. First by Jesus, he gets rebuked by Jesus, right? And now here comes this cloud that comes in, right? It comes in and just speaks at Jesus, right? Or speaks at Peter. And it says, while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking, the, um, the cloud comes in, and I can't find the spot. There you go. The, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, and with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him or obey him. I always say Morgan Freeman, Samuel L. Jackson, I don't care what voice you say, but it's a big, booming voice, right? But what's unique about this whole situation, right, whatever that voice is, it comes from heaven. The cloud is, is defined, Shekinah, it's, it's, it's a transliteration word, which essentially means the, the rabbis and everyone taught that that's God's dwelling place. God dwelt within this cloud. It wasn't a, it wasn't a um, dark, scary cloud or just a white, fluffy cloud. It was a bright, bright cloud. In fact, I don't think we could actually visually picture a cloud that's like this, right? It's this cloud that came in presence. And so what's really unique is that Peter, John, and James, right, they're sitting here eating their popcorn, you know, with their 3D glasses on or whatever, watching Jesus have this conversation with Elijah and Moses, and they're just like, this is so cool. And then what happens when God shows up? They're on the ground, hands down, face to the ground, going, I'm not worthy to be here. Do you see what happened? When God shows up, they realize just what they were in the presence of. And they hit the ground in reverence and fear. It's a, it's a, it's a fear that, that instills in you that I'm not worthy. Danny said at the beginning, he was talking about us being able to worship God. We're not even worthy to worship God. It's only because of what Jesus has done that we can't even stand close to him and let alone be in his presence. And so they hit the ground in fear, which is interesting to me because I feel like the fact that they didn't hit the ground on their hands and knees when Jesus was transfigured in front of them and having a conversation with Elijah and Moses is, is probably because, well, two things. One is, and the more negative, is that they don't really believe that Jesus is God. Right? Because if they had understood who Jesus was, they would have been on their hands and face right when the first time he said, follow me. If they really understood what, what exactly was happening there, right? they, 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 didn't, they didn't see him as God. And maybe the more positive way to see it is that they knew they had a relationship with Jesus. Like this is someone that they had shared meals with, they had they had rebuked and he'd rebuked back because they were wrong for the rebuking. Like this is someone that actually like they'd done miracles with, they spent time with day in and day out. And so they had this relationship. So, so for them, it was, I, I can interact with this one. But when Shekinah shows up, oh, on the ground. So they dropped in faces to the ground. And this is, I think, one of the church's biggest problems today is we have no reverence for our God. None. 
wait, look, look, there are scriptures that says Jesus is our friend, but there are plenty more scriptures that say he is our Lord and Savior. And we have no reverence for God. We don't ever approach him with any kind of reverence of like fear of the fact that when he is that holy, he is that holy that we are only welcome to be a part of him because of what Jesus Christ did. We have lost the reverential fear that is instilled in these disciples that had no idea what they were doing. The first instinct dropped to the ground. When's the last time, let me just say it this way, and maybe this is too graphic for you. When's the last time you actually got down on your hands and knees and prayed to God? Like, I get it. It's, it's, it's emotion. It's, it's whatever. But, but prostrate, that's, that literally goes hand in hand with obedience, to, to lay oneself down before God. And I'm not talking about being legalistic, like you can't pray standing or pray for a meal. How dare you? But when's the last time you actually spent a little bit of reverential time with God? Or you just said, I'm not worthy. God, just speak to me. Or all you spoke was scripture because you knew you had no words. We don't have any reverence anymore with God. We don't see him as, as this big, grand, amazing God. And neither did the disciples. They saw God that way, but they didn't say, see Jesus that way, even though they just six days prior said, you're the son of God. Right? They, they, they missed it. Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's God's own son. The Messiah and God is delighted with what he is doing. The other reason why I think God interrupted um, Peter was because Peter was completely wrong in trying to put Moses, Elijah, and Jesus on the same playing field. How is that like? Jesus, like, I feel like if I were God, which I'm not, just in case you're wondering, right? But if I were God, I feel like this is one of those situations where like, okay, I'm going to do this for them. This is going to be really cool. It's going to be a way to instill some, some power and some, um, some confidence in Jesus because of what he knows he's about to come. And this is going to be a way to show them like he truly is the son of God because remember, this has happened one other time. It was in Jesus' baptism, but most likely Peter, James, and John had only heard of it. They weren't there. He hadn't called them to follow him yet. And so he's like, oh, I think I'm going to set this thing up, right? We're going we're gonna to get this in play. And then it starts to happen. I feel like God's like, Oh, Peter, you're missing it again. That's not God, by the way. God does not speak like that, okay? Just so you know, that's me. He, instead, he goes, oh, okay, this isn't working, right? But instead, what he does is he comes in and says, look, I'm just going to say it from my own mouth. You're going to hear it from me, that this is my son whom I'm well pleased with. That's not like, oh, man, I'm well pleased, like that I am delighted in. I'm ecstatic in. This is him. This is my son. Now obey him. And what's so unique about that is that he's, he's saying, obey him. And, and, and Elijah and Moses disappear and left standing alone is Jesus Christ. Jesus is, is greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than any one of us. He's greater than any fake God that we want to do. He's greater than the religions that we try and make work. Jesus is it. And we see it. These, these disciples are on the ground in fear, shaking, borderline maybe wetting themselves. That was free. That's me. I'm just saying it, okay? But either way, they're down there freaking out. Like, this isn't working. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. What do we do? And you know what the most beautiful part of this whole scripture is? Is Jesus walks over to him and he touches him. He says, rise on up. Come on. Come on up. Don't be afraid. As the perfect advocate for you and I to stand in the presence of God. There's Jesus to touch us and say, rise. 
You see, Jesus, as God, can stand in the presence of us and God and be our advocate so that you and I can stand with him. And he doesn't just say it from a distance like, hey, come on. He comes over and touches him and says, hey, hey, rise, rise. Don't be afraid, guys. Don't be afraid. I'm here. And all that's left is him. Not the law, not the prophets. Although he built on it, he came to fulfill, not abolish. Those are Jesus' words alone, right? But he he said, it's not nothing. It's me. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. You know what's a bigger miracle to me? Is that Jesus was able to mask his deity while in human form. This entire time he's interacting with his people, he had to mask what was coming out of him, which is who he really is. This transfiguration wasn't something extra. This is who he is in God's form. One with God. He was, he was, he's miraculous, majestic, glorious. Do any of these words mean anything to you guys anymore when it comes to Jesus? Or is he just your friend? Okay, he, he is a friend. Like I said, and he loves you. But do you have any reverential awe for the God who created you? So they have this huge thing. Jesus is affirming them, saying, I'm your advocate. Rise again. You can stand because I'm here. And we have to go. And when, when he's talking about his departure, he was having the conversation about the crucifixion, where he's going, what he's doing. And so if I'm the disciples, I'm like, man, I got this ingrained in my head, right? Like if I'm John, James, and Peter, like I'm standing there in that presence, I'm like, I am not missing this anymore. That was amazing, right? That was incredible. We just had God speaking in front of us. Like I had heard people talk about it, but maybe they felt a little entitled. Like we're his three best. Why haven't we heard God from heaven yet? Like, come on now. Did it for the baptism with all those other Joes there. Like we're, we're awesome. And so here they are in this moment where they're like, they've experienced God's glory. In fact, they've experienced Jesus as God. They'd been interacting with Jesus as man, and there'd been lots of obvious power, and there'd been declarations of him being the son of God, but here out of the mouth of God is, this is my son. I want to fast forward real quick. If you, if you can, um, just, just pause for something free. I feel like if I were the disciples, I would be like, I'm in for the long haul, right? I mean, I am in. We're going to follow Jesus. This is it. Like, if you experience that, like, what in the world could ever, ever get in the way of that? Well, fast forward to the Gospel of Mark, um, chapter 14. Uh, Jesus is getting, um, Judas shows up. The 11 disciples are there. Jesus moves forward and has his three homeboys again. Um, They're falling asleep while he's trying to pray in agony. And he, um, and then Judas shows up to, to, to betray him. And so he shows up, and there's a sword thing, and it's like gruesome and cool, but Jesus heals and says, that's not what I'm doing. But either way, he arrests them. And then in, in the Gospel of Mark, I love that it just kind of says this right at the end of it. It's like, okay, he arrests them. And chapter 14, verse 50, and they, John, James, and all the other disciples, minus Judas, right? And they all left him and fled. They ran away. Oh, man, Jesus is getting arrested. I'm out of here. See ya. And they bailed. Peter's the only one that actually follows at a distance, and it really didn't go well for him, if you know the rest of the story, right? He falls for a distance, and then is like, he should have just fled with the other dudes, right? But, he, but he, he comes, he falls, he denies Christ, and he's like, oh, he does it three times to some really, like, like minuscule people in the sense that he's denying him to. It's not even the, the guard or anyone else. He's just denying him to some random people. 
And then the rooster crows, and he's, he's in immediate turmoil, like, I can't believe it. Like, I did exactly what Jesus said I would do, and here I am, and he runs, right? And I, I say this because, look, the disciples who were standing there and were eyewitnesses of it, saw it with their own eyes, they still struggled when life got hard. They still ran when it got difficult, even though they knew what, they, like at this moment, they knew what they were signing up for. Hey, I'm going to be crucified, and there's likely that, that might happen to you too, just, just so you know. Like they knew what was coming, and when Jesus got arrested, phew, scattered. It's why I, I love, I love the Apostle Peter for this. Some 30 years later, he pens this verse that's just amazing. This is the same Peter that denies Christ three times, that puts his foot in the mouth on the mountain, puts his foot in the mouth of Jesus in there, puts, you know, falls in the water. I mean, like, the guy is just kind of perpetually falling and falling and falling, which kind of seems like us, right? Like, always messing it up and messing it up and messing it up. And then what, look, what, for, look what Peter does. Some 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, he writes in 2 Peter verse one, or chapter 1, 16 through 18, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, we're not following some weird, crazy, made-up thing. This isn't some extra religion. This isn't some other belief that seems nice or just be a good person. Like, this isn't some mythical thing that we're making up. It's in regards to Jesus Christ. He goes on. He says, he says but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He remembered you think that's like six months after he'd forgotten when he's denying Jesus. But he didn't. It was impressed in his heart. He remembered, I was an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty. Not of his, oh, look at like his, he was, you know, he healed some people. Not, not I was an eyewitness to him, you know, teaching some cool stuff. No, I was an eyewitness to his glory, his splendor, his deity. I was an eyewitness to that. And then he goes on, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. I was there. I was there. This account has three eyewitnesses and three different gospels written in the same perspective, telling the same story. And Peter's coming again in 2 Peter. I was there. I saw it. When John says that, that Jesus was, was coming um, in truth and spirit, like Jesus embodied, the, the word became flesh. He's like, I saw it. Splendor. Why do we hear that? We go, neat. What is, I, I don't know, like it just doesn't, it, it's good, I guess, but okay. The disciples, they're, they're, they're wrestling kind of their last understanding as they move down. They're coming down the hill and they're going, okay, I saw Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and God spoke, and it was crazy, and Jesus is still there, so this is obviously, he's obviously the Messiah. He's obviously Messiah. Like maybe even Peter had the thought of this is the coming of the kingdom. Like we're going to come down this hill and there is no crucifixion. He's going to waylay Rome and take over and it's going to be great and everything's there, right? And they're coming down. They're like, okay, Jesus, I got one more question because Jesus tells them not to tell anyone, which again, Jesus has done this before, but this is one of those situations. He says, don't tell them until I'm raised from the dead. In the gospel of Mark, we, we learned that raised from the dead is what they got tripped up on. Like, wait, he, he's dying? Like, we're still, he's, he's dying? 
Like, I'm still confused at how they missed it so much. Like, he told them over and over again, plain as day, like, do you want me to draw your map here? Like, here's, here's me, here's a cross. Like, they missed it, right? And they're hung up on that all over. And they're like, okay, well, fine, we'll give you that. But, but the, the scribes, the, the religious leaders tell us that, we're, that Elijah's supposed to come first. Isn't Elijah supposed to come first? That's off of Malachi 4 or 5, the last book of the Old Testament. We know this. Like, this is a prophecy that Malachi says, Elijah will come first. And Jesus affirms and says, yeah, Elijah does come first. He does come first. And, and, and he has come. And he wasn't received. And what happened to him is going to happen to me. And I feel like that's one of those sobering moments where it's like, oh, man, that was amazing. We just saw God in his glory. But John the Baptist was, was beheaded. Jesus says he's going to die. This isn't looking so good for us. But see, their confusion wasn't necessarily that they had the wrong belief. It's that they had a misunderstanding to what Scripture was. In fact, if you turn with me, turn with me, do this. Just back a couple books to Luke chapter 1. If you have a Bible, turn with me. If you have a little, since it's quiet, I'm assuming you have an electronic device. Let's just get you there quick. I won. Just kidding. Um, the, the birth of John the Baptist. And this is something that, that, again, this wasn't written for the, for the apostles, so they didn't have this written in front of them, but this was understood and they knew what was going on. But John, John the Baptist's birth is, is kind of all in chapter 1 of Luke. And it, and it says, um, so Zechariah is in the, in, the, in the temple. He's going to get to do his priesthood work, and he's chosen to, to enter the temple and do the Lord and burnt offerings. And an angel of the Lord um, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Do you see that? It's that same thing, like fear. Something of the Lord, fear instilled in me. I, I said this a couple weeks ago. When holiness meets unholiness, there's a violent reaction. Right? We, we see that on the cross. And so when something of holiness is in our presence, for us, it's like, whoa, whoa. Like, I, I understand I'm washed because of Jesus' blood being spilled for me. I'm washed by him. I, I get it. But man, it's, it's hard to be in his presence because I still can see all of my shortcomings in my flesh despite the work he's done in my spirit. And so he says, you're going you're gonna to have a son. And this is this whole situation. Like, hey, you're going to have a son. You should name him John. And Zechariah doesn't believe him. Kind of like he didn't understand Abraham and, and Sarah. Like, wait, I'm too old. How could you do that? Do you remember Abraham? Like, seriously, sorry. Um, and so he doesn't believe him. And so he comes out. But then the end, the, the angel's speaking. And he says, and in verse um, 16, he says, and he will turn many of the, speaking of John, John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Say so he's, he's, he's going to go in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's not Elijah, Elijah reincarnate. It's going to have the spirit and the power of Elijah in this. So you've already seen Elijah here, and you missed it, and you're going to miss me if you don't pay attention. And yeah, there's still a coming that's going to come. I'm like, that's the second coming. We're the, we're the there but not yet kind of thing. The already but the not yet kind of idea is where we are with, with waiting, patiently waiting God's second coming, where he makes all things new and restores us to all things. And you know who gets to lead that charge? The same Jesus that was transfigured in front of James, John, and Peter. See, and I think for us, we've, we've made Jesus so small. He's not worthy of obeying right? We may not say that, but we sure do live it practically. Jesus, I know, like, I get it. Like, Jesus, you saved me. And we love that he's our Savior, but when it comes to the whole Lord thing, which is, by the way, the very thing that God said, obey him. 
Pretty unique. God above is saying, obey my son. Obey him. And you and I, we, we struggle with this. I think, we, I think there's, there's a few things we can take away from this text. And there's, nothing, there's not a really big application for this. Not like, hey, do these six steps and you'll be here on the seventh one. Or like nothing like that. It's more of a, it's more of a maybe it's just time to recall and remember the power of, of Christ. Like, I, I don't know. I, I, I wrote it this way. Like, the word from heaven made three things clear. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is loved by the Father, and he's pleasing to the Father. And, he, and Jesus must be obeyed. That's four things, but you get what I'm saying. Must be obeyed. And see, I, I feel like, I feel like a, a lot of times we, we, we come to this, and, and this is that question with, with every single one of you should ask this question. Like, who, who is Jesus really to you? Have you been, have you been actually living out and acting, like moving in a lifestyle of that Jesus is truly the Son of God? That everything that Jesus did was pleasing to God, like delightful to his Father, and that Jesus is worthy of obedience? See, I feel like this is a great question for all of us, and I think this is what the disciples wrestled with. Wait, I'm going to die to myself? Like, for what? He's like, hey, you're going to die to yourself for God, for the God who loves you so much that he actually sent his Son to live a perfectly sinless life to experience all the shortcomings and pains and temptations that you and I experience, yet without sin, and then to go to a cross, to be hung there and take the wrath that you and I deserve on him, and then only to be dead and raised three days later so that we can be with God. This is one of those texts where it's really hard for you if you're like, well, I, you know what? I think there's a lot of things that are true out there. There's a lot of things that are, you know, there's a lot of truth that maybe isn't here. This is your, you, that posture is hostile to God. You realize that? Like, because God right here is declaring that Jesus is his son. He is the Messiah. He is it. So you're like, I don't know, Jesus maybe, or Jesus plus, or like, you got you to deal with this text right here. You might as well just take this whole text. You might as well throw out Elijah and Moses while you're at it, because obviously they were pointing to him. This is, this is what this text is showing us. It's showing, like, his disciples, I feel like it's a gracious way for God to say, look, it's going to be hard, but look, it's worth it. Because who you're walking with, you, we, have, we have masked it from you. But let me just unveil it just a little bit for just a moment for you to see his deity, his power, his beauty, his, his ability to lead you through this life into glory with him. The problem with denying ourselves and, and dying to ourselves is, is that we don't believe that Christ is God. We run from that. We, we, we like him being some kind of word picture, some kind of small thing, but, but we really run from the fact that he is God. I wrote him in, this, in my notes this way. The transfiguration demands a response. The natural instinct is fear and worship, falling on our faces before him. But the practical continuation of our response comes at the divine instruction to listen to or obey Jesus. If Jesus truly is the Lord of glory and not just a man, then we must worship him and obey him. And this also confirms, you know what this also confirms? And this is, this is for those of you that are in the middle of this amazing trial right now. And I say amazing in the meaning, it's horrific. You're just, you're just battling. You're like, I can't see an end to this. 
And every time you feel like you're getting light at the end of the tunnel, you're like, oh, oh, and he just kind of gets pulled back. Or just these circumstances seem so hard and so difficult. And it's just like, this is, ah. This, this text, this, this bit of history gives you and me hope. That our faith is not in vain. We don't believe in some figure, prophet, or good person. We believe in God Almighty who sent his son, Jesus Christ. Alone, that's who we believe in. It's not some small thing. So this should instill in you more faith. That your faith and your labor is not in vain because you're doing it for God who is Jesus Christ. It provides us with hope of glory that lies ahead of us. No matter what we have to endure here on earth, only in Christ is there any hope of passing beyond the grave to glory. We, uh, we had set up to do baptisms today, and we actually did baptisms in the first service. We don't actually have anyone in second service to be baptized, but I'm going to do what I do every time because even when I said baptism, there's probably some of you like going, oh, man, I've been meaning to do that, but oh, I got this, or I should have, and I, I can't, and you kind of got these excuses. I feel like baptism is a beautiful picture of, it is, a beautiful picture of union with Christ, Right? It's this picture of I'm going to die to myself and I'm going to be buried with Christ and come out with Christ. That's Romans 6. Right? Baptism is, 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 a, is an opportunity for you to say, you know what, at all costs, I'm in. Every time we do a baptism, there's always a story that's like this. It's like, hey, I, I, you know, I kind of followed Christ for a while. I fell away. I, you know, I've talked about doing it, but I didn't really do it or I've kind of held out and I don't really want to do it and I just, I wrestle with this and we kind of go back and forth with baptism and I just want to encourage you, um, challenge you, if you are in here and you are a follower of Jesus and you have yet to be baptized or you're hanging on to some baptism that maybe happened when you were really, really little and you never actually understood or knew what you are doing, I would encourage you to leave with wet clothes today. I don't think that um, you're not saved by baptism. Romans 3.23 tells us it's by faith alone we're saved. Baptism is a, is a command. We see that in Matthew 28. It says, go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a command that we're to do. It's a union with Christ. Like I said, Romans 6, we're buried with him and raised with him in his glory. And so I, I say that meaning not some emotional response, not some camp high kind of thing. What I'm talking about is, is a true surrender, which is, you know what? It isn't convenient to get wet, but I'm pretty sure it was fairly con- inconvenient for Jesus to walk to the cross. And so it's in aligning yourself with him, saying, I'm done. I'm done living my life for me. I'm done following my own way. I surrender to him and him alone. And almost every baptism, we have one of those. And so I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up, and we're going to worship some more. Um, but if you have a question, you feel desired to get baptized, if you're trying to find excuses not to do it, um, we have towels. Sorry. Um, the water is fairly warm. Sorry. Um, I'm trying to take out the excuses. Um, it's warm outside, so you'll dry fast, too. Um, but those are, those, are, those are kind of crummy reasons to not get baptized for God who is God, right? If you, those are kind of one of those things. And I, I love the, the baptism we had in first service. And it was great. Um, but I just, again, I just want to push on you. Maybe it's not this time you want to talk about it some more. We do baptisms mainly by people that are ready to be baptized. That's how they kind of happen. And so we keep them going that way. So Dan and them are going to come up. I'm going to pray. And if you want to get baptized, please come chat with me in the back. And we can do it after a couple songs. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the transfiguration, the, the fact that this is one of those texts that is 
so hard for us to grab, so hard for us to understand. It's so nice to know that you had uh, James, John, and Peter there to, to wrestle with it, to ask some of the silly questions that we would have asked. Even to see them um, six months later fall away from that, under, that experience and still run from you, God, um, to know that you still graciously bring us back into your community, back into your, into your kingdom, back into your, your life, God. Lord, I pray for, for every individual here. I pray for, for areas in which we are not surrendered. I pray for areas in which we struggle to obey God. Your spirit, I pray that he would come and strengthen us. He would strengthen us in a way to bring um, our lives to look more and more like Jesus Christ, not just here on Sundays, but in, in school, at work, at home, on vacation. God, that we would just be surrendered to you all the way. His, your spirit, he would bring us to look more like Jesus in all those things for your glory and your glory alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.